Uh, great to be with you this morning. We're going to continue through the book of Matthew, and today we're going to talk about the king and his son. The king and his son. But before we do, let's pray together one more time. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your love for us. You have something to say, God, and I pray that you would give us ears to hear it this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, we're in the book of Matthew. We're talking about... um, Jesus's final days here. This is the Passion Week. Okay, Jesus is um, very uh, near to the um, uh, the his um, his 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 death, the most important event that has ever taken place in human history, and he's having these um, these confrontations with the religious leaders. And you remember that totally throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus has repeatedly, over and over, says that all, all these things are taking place according to the Scriptures. So what we see today is that Jesus is using all this Old Testament imagery that the people in his day, especially the religious leaders, would have picked up on to tell them that they are the generation. They're the generation that the scriptures had talked about. They're the generation that would reject the stone that God has made the cornerstone. And he's warning them. But the question is, who's going to hear? Who's going to hear and heed the warning? And it's a warning for us today too. So that's what we're going to talk about as we talk about the king and his son. So if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 33, all the way through 22:14. Jesus says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near... He sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, they sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who'll give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. 
And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in and looked at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. The word of God may be seated. So we're going to talk about the king and his son under two headings. Number one, the kingdom is for those producing its fruits. The kingdom is for those producing its fruits. Number two, the kingdom is for those who embrace the invitation. The kingdom is for those who embrace the invitation. First, number one, the kingdom is for those producing its fruits. So last time we talked about Jesus' confrontation with the religious leaders. He has cleansed the temple. He's overthrown the tables. He's cursed the fig tree. Okay? And so the religious leaders challenge him and say, well, who are you to be doing all this? Where, where's this authority that you got that you claim to have? Where, who do you think you are? Where does, where, does you, where does your authority come from? And so Jesus asked them that question that we talked about last time about John the Baptist, the question that they refused to answer because if they answered that question honestly, they would have the answer to their own question. Because John the Baptist, they was a prophet, though they rejected it. And John the Baptist himself witnessed and testified to who Jesus was. John said that there was one who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, one of whose, uh, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And that was Jesus. But they weren't really interested in the, the, the right answer to their question because they already had made up their minds concerning Jesus. And they were just seeking a, an opportunity to discredit him. And so these questions come right on the heels of uh, Jesus' question about, uh, about John the Baptist. And so what is happening is that Jesus is giving these parables to explain in a kind of a veiled way, as he often did, what, what, is, what theologically is happening. What, uh, who are the religious leaders? What is that generation that he's a part of? What is actually happening in, in God's kingdom and in God's plans? And these parables tell us that story. He, he uses the image of a master, very familiar image to them, a landowner who planted a vineyard. And the, the master took every necessary step to see that vineyard thrive and flourish. 
put a fence around it to protect it. Built a watchtower that could, it could be guarded from thieves and fires could be spotted. He built a wine press to show what? That he expected fruit to come from it. So that when the fruit came, he could make wine from the grapes and so on. He did everything that he could to make the vineyard flourish. Now, what does that have to do with anything? Well, remember, we just read it. It said the, the religious leaders and the Pharisees perceived that he was speaking about them. They understood what he was talking about. Why? Because Jesus was drawing on Old Testament imagery that every single one of them would have understood. He's drawing from, a, a, among other places, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And this is what it says. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. And I will break down its walls and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Jesus is saying something to these people. He's taking this Old Testament imagery, this Old Testament parable, and he's adapting it and he's applying it to his own day. To the Jewish nation and especially to the religious elite. Okay, God is the planter. He's the master. He's the landowner. The vineyard is Israel. Okay, and the tenants most likely represent the religious leaders. God has done everything necessary for the vineyard to flourish, for them to produce it, the fruit that it, the proper fruit that it's supposed to bear for him. Yet somehow, despite everything that God has done for it, it doesn't produce what it's supposed to. Somehow, instead of producing justice and righteousness and love of God, it has produced the bitter fruit of sin, disobedience, idolatry, and rebellion. And so adapting Isaiah's images, Jesus has something to say to the people in his own day. In Jesus' parable, the master departs and leases the vineyard out to tenant farmers, as we said, probably the religious leaders, okay, to take care of the vineyard, to take care of the, 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 uh, the vine so that, so that when the master would send in the proper time for its fruit, he would be able to receive what belongs to him. So he sent servants to them, and it says one they killed, uh, one they beat one, they killed another, stoned another. The servants almost certainly refer to the prophets. Okay, over and over again, God would send Israel messengers to call them back to God, to call them back to repentance. 
Okay? If that shows us anything, what does it show us? It shows us the mercy of God. Right? I, I mean, if you, if you owned a farm back in, you know, in, in, in this day and time in this culture, and you see it and they killed one of your servants, it'd probably only take one time before you'd go and raise that sucker down. But what did he do? He kept sending servants, kept sending servants, kept sending servants in hopes that they would what? That they would repent and turn and change and give him his fruit in due season. But over and over again, they rejected the prophets. Instead of giving God the fruit he deserved, they rejected, despised, beat, and killed those that he sent to them. We can think of Elijah, right? He was chased off by Ahab and Jezebel. We can think of Jeremiah, who was... Uh, <laughs> they, they refused to listen to him when he prophesied that Babylon was coming, all the way up through the time that Babylon came. And then even after Babylon came, they still didn't listen to him. So the parable climaxes, and this is important, and this is huge, I think, because Jesus is saying something very profound that it, it seems it's, it's obvious to us, but, I, but you don't need to miss the weight of what Jesus is saying and what it would have meant to those in his day. Because he says, last of all, God sent his son. The owner sent his son. Jesus is saying that he is not just another prophet. He's the son of the master. He's the heir of everything. It all belongs to him. He's not just another servant. He's the son. And so the idea here is that the son represents even more than the servants did. The direct authority of the master. And of course, I think Jesus is saying nothing less than he is the son of God, which he, he has identified himself as. And so, again, if it says anything, it speaks to the mercy and compassion and long suffering of the master because he sent all those servants. And then finally, he sent his son thinking, well, if they listen, if they didn't listen to anybody else, they'll listen to my son. Right. Remember what the pastor said in Isaiah? What more? What more could I have done for my vineyard? Well, think about this, folks. What more could God do for sinful people than sending his own son? If you reject the son, there's nothing else for God to do. If you reject God's son, there's nothing else that God can give you that will change your mind. If the son can't do it, if the son of God can't do it, nothing will. In these last days, the book of Hebrews says, he, he, the, he, Hebrews says he, has spoke, he has spoken to us in, in various times and in various ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. If they don't respond to the son, there's no hope they will respond at all. So the only thing is left is for them after much mercy and long suffering and compassion. The only thing that's left is for them to get what's coming to them. He will put those wretches. And, and what's interesting is that in Matthew, in Matthew, the crowd is the one who answers the question. And it's like the people themselves know, the, the people themselves know what they deserve. 
he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lit out the vineyard to other tenants who will give them their fruits in due season. In other words, they'll get what's coming and he's going to give it to somebody else. God's going to give the kingdom to somebody else who's going to give him what he deserves. And what's amazing about this, uh, this, this whole rejection, this whole rebellion, is that Jesus, as we said, Jesus said it was foretold in the scriptures. He says, have you never read? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in our eyes. The Lord, the, I mean, this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. Paul talks a lot about it in the early chapters of, of, uh, of uh, 1 Corinthians. About how God uses what is foolish to shame the wise. God sent his son who the, the king, the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah they expected. He wasn't this reigning, authoritative, you know, person who overthrew Rome. He was a suffering servant. Jesus became the king, not by conquering, his, not by conquering Rome, but by conquering sin. Through his death, a dying king, a dying servant is the Lord of all. The stone that the builders rejected, the Israel rejected Christ. And, Jesus, and God says, the very one you reject, I'm going to make the corner, the foundation of my kingdom. And this is what he says. And who, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus was rejected. He was the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. But don't make the grave error to mistake Jesus' meekness for weakness. He came like a lamb, but he's coming back like a lion. And if you stumble on this stone, it will break you. And if you reject this stone, it will fall on you and crush you. Because if you don't listen to the Son, there's nothing more that God can do for you. He sent His Son, His Son, to us. And this language here, this language about the stone um, is, is taken from Psalm 118. And if you go back and, 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 and look at Psalm 118, it refers to uh, Israel or, to, or perhaps to David as Israel's uh, maybe to David as the representative of Israel, okay? But what it is, what it is showing is that um, uh, it, it talk, G, uh, David, for example, right? David was a type of Christ. David was what? He was rejected, right? Saul tried to kill him. He was rejected until what? He, he was chased away. David wrote all those songs of lament and anguish because he was being pursued and persecuted and they were trying to kill him just as they did Jesus. Until what? Until the proper time when what? When the kingdom was handed over to David. In the same way, Jesus is saying, I'm like David. I'm the stone. I'm rejected and chased and persecuted. But there will be the appointed time when the kingdom gets handed over to me. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in his eyes. So this is the principle. This is the principle from this story. That is, no one can claim to be a, a tenant in God's vineyard if he refuses to bear God's fruits. 
And we can't, we can't be a tenant in God's, in God's vineyard if we don't give him his fruits. Because he's going to come and he'll take us out. And, you know, people who maybe kind of unsympathetically read the Bible a little bit, they read, they list, they read that parable and they're like, well, that's a little harsh. Call up an army. <laughs> take them out. But, you, but we forget. We forget all the servants that he sent. How long he waited for them to repent. But there's a timeline. And God's patience is long. It is so long. But one day, time will be up. And beyond that, it's too late. The punishment, I would say, was so severe because God was so patient. The more patience you reject, the more mercy you reject, the more compassion you refuse, the more punishment you got coming. It was only because they rejected so much grace that they would receive so much wrath. And it says that they knew that they were, they knew that Jesus was speaking about them. Jesus was speaking about them, but he's also speaking to us. We cannot expect to reject so much kindness and mercy and compassion for God and think that it'll be okay. He's long-suffering. He's calling people to repentance. He's sending out his servants. He's sending out his spirit. He's calling people to come back to turn to him. He's long-suffering and he's long-patient. If you will turn to God and give him the fruit he is worthy of, he will forgive you of all your sins. Think about it. Think about all those servants he sent. The implication is that if at any point they would have just stopped, he would have forgiven them, which is amazing. But they never repented. But it's, not, it's too late for them, but it's not too late for you. You can repent. You can listen to his servants. You can listen to his word. You can turn. And he'll, he'll have mercy. But you, but you must do it before it's too late. Number one, the kingdom is for those producing its fruits. Number two, the kingdom is for those who embrace the invitation. The kingdom is for those who embrace the invitation. In this parable, it talks about uh, Jesus compared the kingdom to a wedding feast for his son. It says, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the feast, but they would not come. Verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat cows have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. And went off. One to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized the servants, treated them shamefully, killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And the servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man with no wedding garment. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer 
darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So what is this? It's another parable with Jesus explaining the nature of his kingdom. Now, the last parable, I would say, was probably more focused towards the tenants, who I believe were the religious authorities and leaders. But of course, it's talking about Israel as a whole. But in this parable, he's continued to explain theologically what the nature of his kingdom is like, but now he's broadening it, not just to the religious leaders, but to the the nation as a whole and to the nature of his future kingdom. Because remember, his kingdom was mysterious. It was different. It was unexpected. It was not, not, not at all like they expected. He says that the kingdom is like a wedding feast for his son, the prince. Now, it was common to invite people ahead of time and then let them know when, when everything was ready. You know, you've, heard, you've read the other parables about the wedding and, you know, you don't know exactly in those days, okay? You don't have iPhones, right? You, don't, you can't really plan that well. You, you just, you, things, you, things have to be made ready. And then when it's ready, you call your guests. And like the parable of the virgins, you remember that? They didn't know when he would show up, right? They had to be ready for when he showed up. Well, in the same way, okay, he made ready and then he calls the guests. Now, now, in ancient Judaism, right, weddings were like many festivals. Okay, they, they, they could last a week long where you would dance and party and celebrate. Okay? And, and, and they were huge, important events, obviously. Now, think about the nature of this parable. You have a king whose son is getting married. Okay? So, so what is, well, it's not just any wedding. It's a royal wedding. It's a royal wedding. And, you know, I, you know I've never been invited to, uh, I, you know, I wasn't invited to Prince Harry's wedding. I don't know if you were, but I didn't get the invite. Okay. But it's an honor to be invited to a royal wedding. Am I right? And when a king invites you to somewhere, when a king invites you somewhere, that's not just an invitation, is it? What's the highest ranking person on the base? What's he called? General. The general, Stephen Best. Stephen, this is the general. Uh, can you come to lunch with me today? lady can you come to lunch with me today she's not she's not asking you really is she they were invited to the royal wedding to reject such an invitation is almost unthinkable and especially in ancient times in 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 honor shame cultures which are a little bit different than ours It would have been an unbelievable insult to reject such an invitation. And so we, when we read this parable, again, people unsympathetic tend to focus on the severity of the punishment. But again, what they miss is the, is the mercy of the king. He actually sends out his servants twice to call them to come. 
First, he calls them to come and they refuse. So then he sends them back and says, he says, okay, no, 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 just a miscommunication. Maybe they didn't understand. I'm sending my servants out again. Hey, look, we, we got the brisket, y'all. The fattened calf is cooked. We're ready to go. Come on, let's go. Uh, got some business to tend to. A little busy right now. Tell the king I'm sorry. Maybe next time. Verse 5. How did they respond to the king's invitation? It says they paid no attention. It means to neglect or to disregard or to consider lightly or to make light of. Now think about this, folks. Think about this. Most people today, most people today, they don't sit there and think, I hate God. I can't stand Him. That's not how most people think. Most people just simply do this. Ignore Him. Go about, busy about their own life as if He's not even there. They don't, they, don't, they don't outright hate God. They just don't think he's that big of a deal. So they go about doing whatever they want to do without regard for God. And, you know, and they might hear somebody talk about Jesus. They might come to church on occasion and say, the, and, and, you know, and just like I'm saying today, the king through Jesus Christ, his son, is sending out an invitation to all in this room. And yet we walk out and say, hmm, I'll think about it. Not realizing who it is extending the invitation and what it means to reject such an invitation. They paid no attention to God. They consider their worldly matter of vastly more importance than an invitation from the king. And the book of Hebrews talks about this and gives the same warning in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just, just retribution. How, how shall we escape if we neglect, same word in the Greek, if we neglect, how shall we escape if we pay no attention to such a great salvation? It was declared first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So in other words, Jesus came, the son of God sent his son, he gave the invitation, he bore witness to it by signs and miracles and wonders and they still rejected the invitation. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is he's saying is if in the past in Old Testament Israel if in the past 
they got what they deserved because they rejected revelation. What's going to happen to us when God sends us the greatest possible revelation and we still reject it? That's what he's saying. So what does it say the king does at this point? He sent those servants, he said some of them they ill-treated and killed. It says the king was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and he burned their city. Jesus is, Jesus is telling them what's going to happen. He's telling them what's going to happen. God's going to destroy you. And scholars debate over whether this is an allusion to the destruction of Jerusalem, but I, I quite plainly, I think it is. I think it's pretty clear. In 70 AD, just as Jesus predicted, Israel was utterly obliterated, raised to the ground. You could go back and read uh, an eyewitness, Josephus, and the horrors of what took place during that siege and what happened during, that, during um, the, the, the siege in Jerusalem. It's just unbelievable. Jesus said it was happening. Jesus said it was going to happen. And historically speaking, we just think, oh, well, that's Romans crushing. That's just Romans crushing the rebellion. But there's a lot more than history going on. There's theology taking place. It was judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And I would argue that that judgment was a, a type, a picture of the final judgment that is to come. You see, Israel had the first. They had the first chance to receive the Messiah. They rejected him. Now, the whole world has the chance to receive the Messiah. But just as the Lord came to destroy Jerusalem, one day the Lord's going to come to destroy the world. And people are going to have to decide what they're going to do with him. Okay, as we... As we wrap up here, okay, at the end of this parable, since the ones who invited were not worthy, okay, he sends his servants out, we say, to the highway and the hedges to bring everybody in so that his, his feast will be full. Now, this is interesting, okay? It says the servant, and, and he sent them, and the servants did so, and it says, and they brought back both bad and good. Now, that's interesting. What I take that to mean is that He's broadening it out here. So it's not just the religious, it's not just the religious elite who rejected Jesus and who will find themselves under God's wrath, but that but that the general call goes out to everybody. Okay? And 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 not just among the religious elite, but among but among everybody, there's a mixed bag. There's a mixed bag of, of people. And this kind of explains the very strange ending. <laughs> to this parable about someone without a wedding garment. But remember, he said that they brought in some good and some bad. And so he questions him and he says, where is your wedding garment? So in other words, this man, you know, there's the invitation sent out and everyone was brought in. But when he came in, he was not prepared for the wedding. He wasn't ready. He wasn't clothed in the right way. Now that seems kind of shallow to us, but it totally misses the point. He didn't have the proper attire, if you will, to be acceptable at the wedding. 
And it, basically what it goes in is it, is it ties back to this, this, the, the context of these whole parables that he's talking about. Okay? He didn't, he, we could say he was one who wasn't bearing the proper fruits. Okay? So the call goes out to everyone. But not everyone, but not everyone who shows up, if you will, is going to get in. We know that. Jesus said that was going to happen. Right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? And so there's a general call that goes out. But you have to be ready. You have to be prepared. You have to come, if you will, bringing the right stuff, bearing the right fruit of God, being clothed, if you will, in the righteousness of Christ, the wedding garment of Christ. And you show up wearing the wedding garments of Christ's clothing and you'll be accepted. Only those who bear the fruit of God, repentance, faith, love, submission, and obedience, that is the sign that we truly belong to the prince's wedding. Many are called, Jesus said, but few are chosen. And that gets back to the doctrine of election and the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, which we talked about uh, uh, the other Wednesday, if y'all were here for that. But the point is, is that underneath and at root, if you go back and read the New Testament, read Romans chapter 9, you'll see that, that the, the, the root reason, you know, why didn't Israel respond? Why didn't Israel do what he was called to do? And the answer is, is cause, the root reason is because of God's Sovereignty. But that does not resolve us of our responsibility to respond to the invitation. And so as I close, this this is the invitation. The world is God's vineyard. The Bible talks about that. The world is God's vineyard. Everything belongs to him. Remember, he made the earth and he did what? He gave it to all human beings and said what? Exercise dominion over it. Rule it. Work it. Keep it. Plant it. What is he saying? He's saying the world is my vineyard and you're my tenants. The question is for every human being, are we going to give to God what he's doing? Or are we going to try to take the vineyard for ourselves? But here's the glory of the invitation that God, God is long-suffering and patient. And if we will turn, even according to this, even if we had killed his servants, he'll forgive us. You know, the apostle Paul killed Christians. You know that, right? And God had mercy on him. And he can have mercy on you too. If we repent and turn and bear God his fruit, he will, he will, he'll let us, he'll let us be part of his kingdom, his forever kingdom. And he'll change us and make us until he's molded us to be until the day when Christ descends from heaven to take back what belongs to him. And he will judge 
all those tenants who didn't give him his fruit, but those who did, he will gather in to his kingdom. And he'll say, you reign over this, you reign over that, you reign over that, you were faithful in little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Father, thank you.